Iron Fist, the human podcast, commencing. Welcome to the very first episode of Scientist, the human podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, but please call me Sim. I'm here with Dr. David Omodio, who is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. Welcome to the show, to the very first episode. Thank you. Pleased to be here. I'm uh, very glad you agreed to do this. I've been uh, following your work for uh, pretty much my entire college career. I started as a, an assistant in your lab, right, freshman year, uh, which was very unusual. But uh, <laughs> You're precocious. I, I, you and your graduate students were uh, very nice and uh, were willing to take me on. And um, since then, I've uh, learned a bunch in your lab. And so I'm just very glad you can sit down with me for a few minutes to do this. And, <clears throat> okay, so, scenario. You're at a cocktail party. Uh-huh. I don't know why it's a cocktail party, but that's what it is. <laughs> um, you're approached. You introduce yourself, guest, other guest introduces themselves to you. They ask what you do. What do you tell them? Oh, I hate this. <laughs> um, yeah, and it happens all the time. Well, mm-hmm. I say that I'm... I'm a psychology professor, and I that I do research on how people interact socially, how they may have like emotions or, or thoughts that come to mind about other people, and the way that we regulate these mm-hmm. these automatic emotions and thoughts so that we can have more um, smooth social interactions. Okay. Yeah, that's probably not even simple enough for a cocktail party. <laughs> really? I was going to ask you to get more into detail. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, I mean, I have to be honest. As soon as I say I'm a social psychologist, or as anyone, if anyone says they're a psychologist, right away you're going to get questions about uh, related to clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with me or this, this friend of mine <laughs> that I know? Yeah. So um, I, I often hasten to add that I do cognitive neuroscience as well. So mm-hmm. then I think they understand that... Right. Um, this is more experimental science mm. and, and not, you know, laying on a couch kind of psychology. Right. There's a, a physiological aspect to it, a biological yeah. aspect to it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So to get more into the details of it, um, I think I'm really trying to understand how the mind works, what the basic mechanisms of the mind are, um, how, it op- how, the, how these things operate psychologically, and then also how they operate uh, physiologically, so in the brain. Um, I, it's important to consider both levels of analysis, I think, to understand questions about mechanism. Mm. Yeah, and so the types of questions that have dri- driven my work um, usually have to do with things related to social justice. So that includes things just about how people um, manage to act fairly towards others even in the face of uh, competition and, and other uh, motives that might lead them to be more egocentric mm-hmm. or unfair for whatever reason. And especially I've looked at this in um, intergroup relations, so having to do with prejudice and stereotyping. Yeah. That, those interests led me into this field because I cared about these big social issues, but mm-hmm. uh, at the same time when I was in college, I realized that... Um, from a, a social cognition point of view, that is, like, um, social cognition has to do with understanding the cognitive processes that that underlie a lot of um, our social behaviors. Mm-hmm. From a social cognition point of view, 
this field of prejudice and stereotyping is really rich for trying to look at psychological processes at many different levels of analysis. That means you can look at how prejudices and stereotypes affect um, how we judge other people. Um, we know that those things happen really quickly and automatically, or you might need to deliberate on your judgments. And so, you know, it's also a context where there's a lot of automatic things going on as well as more controlled, we call it. Hmm. Um, it's a context where there are strong social pressures. You don't have strong social or peer pressures to act certain ways in, in you know, in all domains right. that we study in psychology. But this one, it's really strong. And then um, I mentioned how I look at how emotions may operate here or mm -hmm. thoughts pop into mind. So um, also from a psychological point of view, you're talking about affect and cognition. It's like two right. fundamental areas. I was going to ask you about that. A term that came up often when I was looking at some of, some of your papers was affective with an A, neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So could you kind of explain a little bit more what that is and how that relates to your research? Sure, yeah. This, this is, um, uh, refers to organization of the field, I guess, and the way, in the way that the field is developed. But for a long time, probably since the 50s or 60s, um, there, there was a split between behavioral and cognitive forms of psychology. And um, neuroscience really flourished uh, that time and even before um, by studying animal models. Mm. And when you study animal models, I mean, you're able to get into the brain in ways that are, are more invasive than something you could do with human subjects. But you can't ask a rat what it's thinking or how it's <laughs> feeling. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Um, and so for that reason... Um, you know, psychologists who were studying neural processes in, in animals didn't feel that they could make inferences about thought and emotion, mm -hmm. these higher level constructs that also, probably until more recently, were considered to be uniquely human. So um, at some point, and I won't even try to put a date on it because I'll probably be wrong, but... Um, uh, through neuropsychology, and, which is the study of, of human patients who had some brain injury or something that, that creates some isolated impairment in, mm -hmm. in the way that like, their memory works. So, right. um, there, there became more interest and in, in better approaches to trying to understand the role of the brain in, in high-level human cognition or emotion. So this field of cognitive neuroscience developed um, around those ideas. Mm -hmm. um, emotion was something, though, that, that didn't that wasn't really brought into the folds in a serious way for uh, quite a while longer. So um, once once the the techniques this came um, along with advances in um, functional neuroimaging, mm -hmm. which really blossomed in the '90s, late '90s especially. Um, FMRIs, FMRI, for example, mm -hmm. and I think advances in other other techniques like using EEG or um, PET. Positron mm, right. um, developed commensurately with um, fMRI to, to find better ways to study this stuff in humans. Anyway, that's where people started labeling it affective neuroscience. Mm, right. Now. Okay. Probably it all falls under the umbrella of cognitive neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's a long answer to your question. Yeah. No. 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 I, I appreciate the thoroughness. I, I mean, yeah. I was as I was reading, I was thinking how 
how much can you really separate the two, right? Yeah. How much can you really separate uh, emotional uh, processes or mechanisms in the brain versus non-emotional? Because I mean, I'm sure that the, the mechanisms have to be linked to, to some degree, right? Yeah, everything is connected, and mm. and our brain really works as a as as a unit of like concerted processes. But you know, they, it's not like we have multiple split brains mm-hmm. right. despite <laughs> yeah yeah despite many ideas that that you can't you can't have a, a brain split in two and still function just mm-hmm. not so not not so optimally uh but that raises an interesting question of how you study things like cognition and emotion mm-hmm. at the physiological level right it's because in our subjective experience of the world that's like how we we consciously experience things um we don't, we don't have a conscious awareness of all the different underlying physiological things going on in our mind, right. how it all comes together. Yeah. So what we experience is how it all comes together in mm-hmm. some coherent way. Um, but emotions uh, are experienced really intensely. And so it's clear to our experience that that's, that's a special kind of response that we have. Mm-hmm. Cognitive uh, capacities, you might call them, Things like um, memory, how we categorize and process information. Um, we, we know that we can just do that often without a lot of emotional um, feeling attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they seem really different to us. In, in the brain, you can, you can pull them apart a little bit. We've, we know this through brain lesion work and then also more recently with, with fMRI. Mm-hmm. But, but they're still so intertwined. Um, Strong emotions will tune attention and memory, and it can have a major impact on, on what features of, of uh, an experience that we remember, how we remember it, how it then influences our behavior later. So understanding the interplay of cognition and emotion, it's, it's a long-standing quest, and um, people are still actively working on this question. It's, it's, it's yeah. one of the, the major mm-hmm. questions of the field. Yeah. So... Earlier, uh, you mentioned, um, I guess, social issues that are being studied by social psychologists or social neuroscientists, uh, such as yourself, or, or even the, the uh, different emotional responses people have. How do you model these in a, an experiment or a lab setting to, to study them? Sure, with a lot of creativity oftentimes. Yeah. Um, what a social psychologist do, and that's my main area of training or my background, is um, to try to study how people act in a real-life situation. And so to do that in the lab, you have to um, construct a situation oftentimes. Mm-hmm. It, it might involve mild deception, it might not. Right. Um, it's not because psychologists are devious, it's because they really are trying to create what we call ecological validity, which is the, just the sense that this is a realistic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, uh, I guess, for, as some examples, um, in one study, we wanted to understand the extent to which people feel guilty if they do something that, that comes off as prejudiced, racially prejudiced. Mm-hmm. So these are white subjects who are going to respond to... Um, uh, images of people who are white or black or Asian. And we wanted to understand what the extent to which they feel guilt and then how that guilt relates to their future behaviors that might um, be aimed at reducing their prejudice. And 
I'm describing this because I think it's one of the the higher impact mm. kinds of situations I created in the lab yeah. with with my colleagues, um, Patricia Devine and Eddie Harmon Jones, and um, in that study we we brought subjects in. They, we measured EEG, so they're hooked up to all this electrical recording equipment. And EEG is just an electroencephalogram, right? Exactly. And it measures brain waves. To put it very mildly, very simply. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they're in the lab. They're they're hooked up to this this uh, this apparatus, which really is like wearing a little stretchy cap that mm -hmm. has a lot of little electrode sensors embedded mm -hmm. in it, and we use a little bit of gel in, in each of those sensors. This is something you know well, I yeah. think. Um, <laughs> and that lets us measure changes in in, in uh, voltage on the scalp that reflects mm -hmm. changes in electrical signals going on within the neurons of the brain. Yeah, anyway, they it takes a while to set this up, so I think they're, you know, participants in this study realize it's serious. Right, yeah. Um, but we wanted to understand this, this guilty emotion and, it, and to do it realistically. So um, my colleagues and I came up with, uh, I think, a clever way to do it, which was we showed... Um, these participants' pictures of first of um, just general images that were clearly really positive or clearly mm -hmm. really negative. So they, they might see pictures of ice cream and puppies and babies, <laughs> and then they also see pictures of um, you know snakes and spiders and mm -hmm. you know kind of gory, scary images, mm -hmm. and then neutral pictures too, like a, a basket or a towel or something. And um, all right, that's one thing that they did. Then they also looked at pictures of people, faces, black, black um, males, white males, and Asian males. So mm -hmm. In this study, we just had them look at males. And this is because um, when you're studying prejudice and stereotypes, they often tend to be especially strong toward males, although you know, gender issues or gender differences are interesting in themselves. But they mm -hmm. saw these male faces. Sure. The trick was... Um, after they saw all these, we said, you know what, while I'm doing something else, me as being the experimenter now, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to just have the computer just crunch your data and automatically show you what your, your brain responses were to these different images you saw. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it'll show um, first your, your responses to those general pictures, and then it'll show your responses to the faces. Mm -hmm. And so I pretended that the computer's just going to do this automatically. I mean, it did do it automatically, but it was going to give them bogus <laughs> information. So this is where the deception comes in. <laughs> this is the deception. Yeah. So this one, we had to use um, more deception than I typically do. Mm -hmm. Typically, we, we don't use any. Um, and so first they see this graph. It's all private. They're in a room uh, by themselves. They think I, I or the other experimenters were doing something else. A, a bar graph comes up that shows that they had a strong positive response to the pictures of puppies and babies. Mm -hmm. um, an in-between response to the baskets and towels and a really negative response to spiders and, and gore. Right. Um, and then the, the computer says, now we'll show you how you responded to the faces. Mm -hmm. And then it shows a, a very positive response to white faces, mm -hmm. a relatively positive one to Asian faces, and then a pretty negative response to black faces. Right. And then the, the participant um, just had to wait while we then took another few minutes of EEG recording. And then they filled out a questionnaire that just asked them in general terms, how do you feel at this moment? Mm -hmm. It's like um, several different emotion 
words that they mm. could just rate like on a one to nine scale, I think. Right. And sure enough, these subjects who are pretty much all um, egalitarian in their beliefs, they don't, they, they don't endorse prejudice, um, felt really guilty. Mm. More so than any other emotion. Mm. And um, that was associated with a change in brain activity that, that uh, was a, a drop in left frontal cortical activity that we associate with well, that part, that region of the brain is often associated with um, approach motivation or mm -hmm. action orientation. And we saw a drop in that related to their guilt, suggesting so, that. So just to clarify, yeah. so they were still hooked up to the EEG as they were filling out the questionnaire, right? Oh, yeah. We so, weren't measuring the EEG while they did the questionnaire, oh, okay. but, but they were still hooked up. Okay. Yeah. Right. We were interested in the EEG when they were seeing the feedback. Ah, okay. When they were seeing the feedback. Got it. Yeah. So that related strongly to how guilty they felt. Right, yeah. Right, so that, that sort of told us, that, that indicated that that experience of guilt, first of all, it occurred. Second of all, it corresponded to a shift in brain activity that, that you could just interpret as like um, a drop in your motivation. You just kind of feel like stuck, like mm -hmm. I can't do anything right now. And, and it's also associated with um, self-reflection. So I did something bad. Mm. This is classic guilt. I did something right. bad. I feel crummy about it. I'm going to stop my behavior right now and consider what, what just went on. Mm -hmm. Maybe then make plans for the future. Right. And then, then the last part of the study is we tested this idea that once you're guilty, especially in this prejudice-related context, um, you might reflect and then come up with um, plans for the future so that when you see an opportunity to, to make up for this thing that you did, you're going to pounce on it, you're going to go for it. Mm -hmm. And so we showed them um, a lot of different titles of newspaper articles and magazine articles that they might potentially read. And we said mm -hmm. we're, we're, we might use these in a future study, and we had them rate how um, interesting they seemed. And some of those titles had to do with reducing their prejudices. Others were just irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the people who felt the most guilty were especially interested in reading articles about how to be less prejudiced. And when they saw those articles, that part of the brain that related to emotion became really highly active. Mm -hmm. And which part is that? Just the, the left frontal cortex, okay. left prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. It was um, a coarse measure of it using EEG. If we had used the MRI, we would have had a clearer yep. measure of that. But still, that's what we got. And... Um, so that's an example of the kind of experiment you, you were asking me about, right. where we set up a, a realistic situation, it elicited a real experience of guilt, and um, we were able to show that how, how guilt, that guilty feeling um, relates to changes in brain activity, related to motivation, and how it also then creates this dynamic, what we call a dynamic situation, where at first you, you stopped what you're doing and you were self-reflecting, and then when and then you looked out for opportunities to get better. When that opportunity came along, mm. that guilt shifted you into an approach mode. Right. And so we, that was just <clears> one <throat> way that we examined how um, emotion plays a role in, um, in, in the process through which people try to control their prejudices. So a lot of the research you and a lot of the research that, that your lab and your graduate students do does have to do with intergroup relations and intergroup anxiety, right? That's right. Yeah. 
So I'm sure, and you kind of, you kind of touched on this um, in that example, and I'm sure you get asked this question often. Um, actually, I think you mentioned that you do. Yeah. Um, are people, through no fault of their own, born racist? Oh, yeah. But I want to ask my own variation of this. Sure. Um, I've been reading up on the field of epigenetics, and it's fascinating stuff. It's not fully developed yet, but it's very, very interesting. And um, I think last year, uh, I forgot where, but there was a... Uh, a mouse study done and it was found that the offspring of mice who were given were exposed to a particular scent and giving in uh, given an elect a non-lethal electric shock whenever that scent was present mm -hmm. so they developed a fear association with that scent offspring of those mice had a similar fear anxiety response to that scent without the electric shock without ever having uh, been exposed to it. So, I mean, it's, there's still not, uh, I mean, that's a very current uh, area of research and they're still not sure how uh, epigenetics, or whether it's DNA methylation or what, whatever really, the proper me mechanisms that happen um, for, for that to occur, but how far do you think, or how well do you think we can kind of extrapolate that to social psychology and humans when it comes to uh, stereotyping or intergroup bias. Yeah, that's an amazing result. Um, and, and I hadn't heard of that. So it suggests that if your parents have a negative experience or just a bad mm -hmm. relationship with people from a particular group, then their kids innately, well, Genetic, through genetic changes, through the genes that are passed on to their children, mm -hmm. will be born with uh, prejudices towards this group or just some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's quite provocative. Whether it's true for humans, mm -hmm. uh, that's an interesting question. It's surely to be quite complex. Um, these are the way these forms, th these prejudices form. Um, it, involves so many different factors. Mm -hmm. um, it could involve, it includes things like basic cognitive processes, the way that we naturally carve up our experience into categories. Mm -hmm. and we see people who have different shades of color as, as relating to different categories. Um, that's just one example of the way we carve up the, the social world. Um, there are political historical reasons for mm -hmm carving up groups in certain ways oh, and course, having yeah. biases toward them and and it's unclear to what extent very young children pick up on these things and start mm -hmm. to apply them. And that's an active area of research right now, developmental right. psychology. Um, we've done a lot of work in our lab, but I mean this is a, a topic that's studied broadly in the field since the 70s, but looking at how the most arbitrary category distinction can create prejudices, stereotypes, and even change the way that that your brain detects um, or processes the face of a person. Mm -hmm. So just one example is um, you might bring um, participants into the lab and they might do um, some general personality kind of questionnaire and you can say you are, based on this questionnaire, it looks like you're um, uh, you know, a blue color type person mm -hmm. as opposed to a green color type person. Right. 
we didn't use that exact distinction, but it's, it's that arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And then you might expose the person to faces that they believe are other people who are green or blue types. And what's been shown in the field many times is that um, um, that basic, min we call it a minimal group distinction, um, is enough to elicit uh, greater rewards if you're, if you're like allocating money mm. towards in-group members compared with the out-group members. Um, our, more, our work recently has shown that, as I mentioned, um, faces of in-group members are processed um, more, more elaborately mm. at a very early level, early stage in the brain. And um, people also form these spontaneous mental representations of in-group members just looking more attractive and socially engaging and stuff mm -hmm. that wow. we've shown then um, can, uh, that change in representation can actually cause um, unconscious positive attitudes toward the in-group compared with the out-group, mm -hmm. um, cause more positive impressions of the in-group member, and also cause behavioral changes so that they're more trusting of in-group members than out-group members. Right. So research like that is interesting because it shows how quickly the, the human mind will um, will uh, acknowledge categories, just create create categories and then build on them. Mm -hmm. I mean, those studies we and really again. really arbitrary categories too, which is pretty yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, that that technique to look at prejudices and stereotypes and just all types of biases based on um, an arbitrary minimal categorization is used because it acknowledges all the complexities that go into real-world prejudices mm -hmm. and so that technique tries to just look at the most basic kind and then you can imagine trying to layer on all these other more complex factors to try to understand how real-life prejudices work. Mm -hmm. I brought that up just to say that's how simply and quickly biases can form. Right. Um, so to ask, you know, where do these things come from? Mm -hmm. and, um, and whether or not there's a genetic basis for them. Yeah, and, yeah. there may be, but um, we know just socially and cognitively it's, right. it's so easy to create these. Mm -hmm. Just as a, a disclaimer in a way, this, uh, this capacity for the human mind to see categories and act on them like that, it's very adaptive in almost all other situations. Right. Right? <laughs> I mean... You can, it's really critical that you you can identify what is a chair mm. and what is not a chair, so you don't go sitting on everything else. Right. Um, it just starts to break down when it comes to social uh, social mm. objects, people, mm. and even more so as societies become more and more diverse like they are today. Right. Well, that's definitely really fascinating. Oh, but quick change of pace. Yeah. Second scenario. You're sitting in your office, you're having a cup of coffee, or I don't know what your drink of choice is, but you're sipping on it, and suddenly an idea pops into your mind. It's a really potentially interesting research question. Yeah. Somewhat new. Can you take us through the process of forming that question to a published paper? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a, a million things involved, but I guess very brief. Very yeah, brief. it's a, a long process with a, mm -hmm. lot of, a lot of excitement and a lot of heartache, but uh, sure. Mm -hmm. 
um, getting that idea, that's, that's the most fun part of doing science, mm -hmm. I think. Just, just knowing that there are a lot of, a lot of questions that remain unanswered and, um, yeah, so it, it's, it's really exciting when you have a new idea for addressing some important issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if I, if that idea comes to mind, I'm sitting at, drinking my coffee at my desk, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Probably the first thing I'll ask myself is, after I after I thought oh, that's a good idea, has anyone done this before? Right. Um, yeah. So a first step is often just doing some literature searching mm -hmm. on your computer, looking at various databases we have for um, scientific articles. Um, maybe talking with some colleagues and grad students, running it by them, mm -hmm. and then also, um, I know that. I'll have an idea that I think is is the best idea I had in in months, and then I'll forget about it the next way, next day if I don't mm -hmm. write it down. So I also right. also have a little log or journal I keep on my computer, just a mm -hmm. word document where I be sure to like quickly note any any good ideas before I forget them. Um, yeah, then you have to design an experiment. Um, I usually work with my my PhD students or postdocs or undergraduate. Um, research assistants in the lab to um, sometimes we have to create new stimuli whether mm -hmm. they are pictures of people or, or different objects we have to come up with the right scenario to really I don't know, elicit or model the kinds of um, kind of experiences that, mm -hmm. that we have in mind like for example that that example I gave of a uh, guilt mm -hmm. um, Okay, um, oftentimes if, if we do an experiment and we're talking about human subjects, we need to get a, a ethical approval mm -hmm. for doing this kind of research that can take weeks to months. Um, once we're, we're collecting data, we have to recruit people to be in our studies. Right. Um, it, it takes, that takes months to years right. to yeah. get enough subjects. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't run one subject, look at their responses, and then assume that everybody else is going to act the same way. Right. So you need to collect data from, you know, um, within each condition of your study. You mm -hmm. might have a control condition and then an experimental condi condition, a very mm -hmm. simple two group study. You mean usually often they have like four or eight conditions, but right. you know these days we need like forty, fifty, or sixty people in a condition. Yeah. That could take a long time if you're measuring brain activity, it might take two to three hours per subject. Mm. Um, so that's that's where a lot of the work, initial work is done. It, so I'm, I'm guessing now a year's gone by in this process, um, at least for me often. And then you have the data, you analyze it, um, things may look just as you predicted, mm. which would make it easy to write about because you've already gone through the thought process, you already have the theory, and now mm -hmm. the, the data match pretty well. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's not exactly as you expected. Then you have to think, what the heck is going on here? Right. And um, that's really exciting too, I think, because it's it's like solving a, a problem or a jigsaw puzzle or something where you can sort of start to see patterns of what's going on, but it, you haven't quite wrapped your mind around it. Mm -hmm. You might need to run a new study to to figure out you know, to, to explicate something that was a little mm -hmm. unclear in the first study. Mm -hmm. um, so, so 
yeah, maybe another year will go by while you run a couple more studies, wow. you figure it out. Mm -hmm. Then, yeah, analyzing the data can, can take months. Mm. I've even had situations where I gave up on a data set, I just didn't get it, it didn't work out. And wow. then, this is, this is rare, maybe one or two times, but then... Because you can't just collect data and present it, it has to be statistically significant and... and Oh yeah, right. and that's yeah. what I mean about analyzing the exactly. data. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, I'll just break that down for a second. You, if you're doing neuroscience work, let's say human neuroscience with EEG or MRI, the mm -hmm. data that you collect are, you know, it's zeros and ones. It's very basic mm -hmm. data that you have to do a lot of processing on to create brain images or at least signals that you can then score for um, brain activity. Mm -hmm. Same thing with a lot of behavioral responses. And then you can do statistical analyses to compare effects between your, your conditions. Mm -hmm. um, that takes a while too, and things can get kind of complex. Right. Um, once you have your findings though, in a way that makes sense, and you're ready to write, you have to craft a manuscript that um, some people are really quick, others take, the, take longer, but um, it requires a lot of thought. How do you frame this now? How do you how do you present it in a way so that a reader who doesn't know where you're coming from at the beginning can pick mm -hmm. it up, find that this question is interesting, and that gets them through the first page, and then um, present um, an interesting question, and then also present an approach that might address it. And then, of course, you have to be rigorous in, in your methods. You have to present like a detail in terms of how you select your participants, mm -hmm. how you design your study, how you mm -hmm. did all of that. Um, and, and so that's a challenge into itself. You submit it to a journal. It goes out for peer review. Right. These days, actually, they, the editor will often read it and decide that sometimes it's, it's not going to fare well. And oh, just okay. reject it. And they call it a desk rejection. Oh, wow. I'm an editor myself these days and so, so I'm on that end of you've done some rejections times. you have to yeah in a journal I'm at that rejects 85% of the manuscripts oh wow um, I mean that that's that's how it is at top journals in our field I feel like a lot of people don't know that that these it's not it's not easy to as you just went through the process it's not easy to get any sort of uh, you know scientific paper published it's no even <laughs> even if you can get the experiment done over a year two years or longer and you you get the paper written up and you submit it, it still might not be accepted. And yeah. Yeah, that's tough. And um, if you are ambitious in this field, and a lot of people are, um, you also want to publish your papers at the very best journals because mm. the, the top journals, there's a heuristic that, the, that what's published there is the high quality. Mm -hmm. um, the top journals also have press machines. They'll, they'll make sure that the public or the media learn right. about your findings or are more right. likely to. They, they're widely distributed within the field. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of advantages to publishing in top-tier journals. Mm -hmm. um, but to do that, you also have to realize that um, for any number of reasons, your, your paper might get rejected and you might get bounced around a couple of journals before your paper mm -hmm. kind of lands, like finds equilibrium uh, among all the factors. Yeah. Um, and so that can also take more than a year. If, let's say you send it also to my journal, which is Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, mm -hmm. um, which is a top journal in the field of personality and social psychology. Right. 
but it's it's also known for um, publishing longer articles that have multiple studies mm -hmm. and involves multiple rounds of review. So you might send your paper in. Hopefully, you you hear back within four months, but it could take longer than that. I had a paper wow. that took like eight months, not long ago. Wow. You hear back, they say, eh, we, we kind of like it, mm -hmm. but we have these questions and we think you need to run another study to mm -hmm. deal with this. So then you have to go back to the drawing board, run another study, put wow. it back in your paper. Mm -hmm. Another six, eight months go by. You send it to them again. Mm -hmm. Then they re send it out for review again. So that's another four months. Then it comes back, and then they say, well, now, now it looks better, but we have all these other issues. We want all these other revisions. Mm -hmm. So you might send it back and you know, do all that. That's a few months. Send it back. It might go off for review again. And this sounds ridiculous, I know, but um, that, that multi-round process might take a year or two. And that's just to get into one journal on right. your first shot. Mm -hmm. Then you might, and it ha it's happened to me, then you might get rejected after three rounds of revision. Wow. And then you have to go somewhere else. That's so that's the heartache part of it. Um, and I mean, while the review is going on uh, of your, your paper, you're running other studies, you're doing other things. Right? Oh, yeah. You're not just, not just sitting there twiddling <laughs> thumbs. Right, you're not just waiting for that one paper to get published. So Yeah, i got a million balls in the air right. at any given time, but still, you put your heart and soul in these in these things, in these projects mm -hmm. that you've spent years on now, and um, hopefully they they land somewhere, and then right. it's, then it feels great. Um, but yeah, that's that's the reality. I will say though that some mm -hmm. people can do this really much more quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think what I described is about the average. Okay. Um, but these days, with online data collection, mm -hmm. you can conduct a study. Uh, over a weekend, right, yeah. sometimes, and if you're if you're really savvy, I guess, or really effective and efficient, mm -hmm. um, I suppose you can you could go from an idea to a manuscript in a, a month or two. Mm -hmm. That's that's extreme, but I'm sure it happens. That, yeah, but if if you're able to do that, that is pretty amazing. I mean, based on the average you just described, if you're able yeah. to get to a man, yeah, that's. Thing is, though, you can only get at so many interesting questions with online data, like mm -hmm. doing a questionnaire yeah. online. That's yeah, you wouldn't be able to conduct an EEG study online. Yeah, <laughs> or create a realistic situation right. where people are engaged in social interactions. So we've discussed some of the challenges that um, you know you face that face as a re researcher currently. Can we talk about your graduate school experience? Sure. What challenges did you face as a PhD student? And how or how did you overcome them, or who helped you, or any interesting stories along the way? Yeah, well, everyone has different experiences in graduate school. One interesting reason, maybe, is that, um, and this is true for like every stage of being a scientist or a professor, it's really hard to get into top graduate programs. And interestingly, the things that that get you into a, get you admitted into a top program are not necessarily necessarily the same skills and talents that help you to thrive and succeed once you're a PhD student. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. The the things that that allow you then to go from a PhD student to getting a postdoc or a um, professorship are different from what you need mm -hmm. once you're a professor. Right. So. Um, 
I think as an undergraduate, I was I was someone who uh, really just took classes that I thought were intrinsically interesting, mm -hmm. interesting, and uh, I I either didn't take or didn't do well in in other courses that perhaps my mm -hmm. you know my my father might have thought would be a good life skill mm -hmm. <laughs> to learn. Um, so I I think other other people I went to college with were better overall students. They probably had an easier time getting into um, grad, uh, PhD programs. Luckily, I still got in a couple, and including mm -hmm. one that I went to that was the perfect fit for me. Mm -hmm. um, at at uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison, and but once I got to graduate school, suddenly I felt like the things that I was good at that weren't necessarily help, so helpful as mm -hmm. an undergraduate suddenly were use more useful. Right. As a as a PhD student, you know, budding scientist. Mm -hmm. So the challenges as a PhD student, first of all, you once you arrive, a lot of us were in the mindset of being an undergrad. Still, mm -hmm. you go to class, you go home, watch some TV, <laughs> do your homework. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, the first year of a PhD program involve switching mindsets, and um, I tell my students here now that um, being a PhD student is a job it's not a it's not school right. mm -hmm. this is the beginning of your career mm -hmm. your career started now yeah it's a little scary to think about that way but it's the truth mm -hmm. and it's critical to be in that mindset people think that professors take all summer off and they they go on vacation mm -hmm. we work our butts off all summer because that's when we're not teaching professors like like me and my colleagues at here at NYU, and, and many other universities, teaching is just part of what we do. But mm -hmm. the science is really what drives us. So we're, we're doing that all summer. So as a PhD student, you have to learn to do that. Mm -hmm. um, you have to make a, a pivot between learning about the field as a student to being a critical thinker. Right. Where you don't just take um, every article's word mm -hmm. at, at face. Mm -hmm. Um, you sort of have to get in a mindset where, uh, of, in, in which you can you think that you've got new ideas that can make contributions, mm -hmm. and that takes I don't know I think that takes a, a bit of an attitude. Um, uh, so uh, somebody recently said you you have to, at some level, start to believe your own hype, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's so true. Mm -hmm. Um, ideally, you you understand what's hype and mm -hmm. what's not, but you still have to have enough attitude or some confidence to to push through. If you're not so sure, it's going to be hard to compete. And then you have to follow through. You have to learn to be a good manager. You often have teams of researchers working with you, mm -hmm. like you've worked with the, some PhD students in yeah. my lab. Mm -hmm. Amy has had to, you know, manage a, a bunch of people and right, get them yeah. all to show up and mm -hmm. learn these protocols perfectly and, and do everything. Um, you need to be resourceful and a bit opportunistic in, in like seeking out um, funding for yourself, um, opportunities to present your findings, your research to others, like going to conferences. You have mm -hmm. to learn to get over any fear of public speaking they have. Yeah. Um, to um, to be able to give talks mm -hmm. to uh, to uh, colleagues in your field, um, yeah. So all all of that's a bit of a challenge. 
and then PhD programs in psychology are typically about five years. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, you have to accomplish an awful lot in five years. I also described how mm -hmm. long it takes for a paper to be published. Yeah. So if, if you take that seriously, it means you need to start submitting papers by your second or third year if mm -hmm. you hope to have them on your CV right. by the time you are going to graduate. And then at that point, you're looking for jobs either as a postdoctoral researcher, which is to mm -hmm. say... Um, you might spend a couple years working in a different lab just to fine-tune your, your skills and gain some new skills before you go on the job market for a professorship. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, you pretty much these days need uh, multiple publications yeah. to get the top jobs. And I mean, being prepared to submit manuscripts in your second or third years means starting research, like running, coming up with a question or... Uh, yeah. Doing research in your first year, probably just oh yeah, just starting right away, not that's, just taking classes, just get jumping into the lab. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah, at least at um, research-focused programs. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, as soon as uh, a prospective PhD student tells me that they they decided they're going to come to NYU to work with me, mm -hmm. um, that's usually in March or April. Uh, we start communicating about possible projects they'd work on. Mm -hmm. They start. I start sending them papers to read. They yeah. they do the same thing. They look for papers to read, and the idea is we we generate our ideas over the summer before they even arrive. Mm -hmm. We get um, ethics approval, hopefully by the mm -hmm. end of the summer, and yeah. then by the by the time that they step foot onto the premises, yeah. um, they're starting to collect data. Mm -hmm. That's how it works ideally. That's how it usually works around here, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, and not everybody makes it. There are, there are far fewer professorship jobs each year um, than PhDs that are graduating. Right. Yeah. By the time you graduate, a lot, of, a lot of PhD students decide that maybe they want to go into industry or mm -hmm. some other type of occupation. Um, people also sort themselves in terms of whether they really enjoy the experience of teaching and working with undergraduates mm -hmm. or they, they prefer working in the lab and doing research. Mm -hmm. Usually you do a mix but you focus more on one or the other depending on the type of job that you have. Yep. So there's a lot of sorting that goes on. Um, yeah, and you also have to manage stress. I mean, that's true in any job, right? Yeah. But um, it just seems like at every step of the way, whether it's from undergrad to graduate school, and then from graduate school to a postdoc, from postdoc to professorship, hopefully, there's just a huge learning curve, right? At each oh, step, yeah. and that is you just get thrown yeah. into the new situation. Right. It is like any any other job in, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, but one thing that's more unique about the academic life is. Um, it's very autonomous. Mm -hmm. So you're your own boss. Um, and it's a blessing and a curse. You're your own boss and mm -hmm. you don't punch in or out of any yeah. clock. Yeah. So you could think of it as like you have free reign to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. You can come and go as you please. Um, but you know, you're not gonna you're not going to get promoted or even keep your job if you don't really produce. Right. Competition is stiff. Mm -hmm. So the way I thought of it when I, when I was um, a postdoc or starting out as a professor is the clock is on. Mm -hmm. Everyone in the field 
is is you know working as hard as they can. Mm -hmm. I can choose to go home at six p.m. and turn my mind off and not think about work, and I could also go do whatever I want on the weekends and take mm -hmm. long vacations. But the clock is still running. Right. And that that's a motivator, mm -hmm. and um, that's the reason why so many of us we never are we're never not thinking about our work. Mm -hmm. We're working at night in the morning when we right. wake up, we work every weekend. We hate taking vacations because <laughs> you're just anxious thinking about all these projects you want to get done. Mm -hmm. it, it always would take me a few days just to finally start to relax. Mm -hmm. And despite the anxiety, that's a great mindset to have, especially in any, any competitive field, right? If you want to... It's a great mindset yeah. for, for succeeding and competing mm -hmm. in that it's... You can argue whether it's a great mindset for your health. <laughs> right. right, so... But uh, let me just add also that sure. the types of people who do well and who, who have that mindset, they're pretty much selected for. These are the folks who are mm -hmm. going to be workaholics and neurotic about this stuff no matter what field they went into. Mm -hmm. And I think that they, they, they kind of got selected into academics because they're the people who are going... They're going to prefer going to work over going on vacation mm. a, lot, a lot of the time. When you say they, you mean we, you're including yourself. In yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now that I have a family, I have a son mm -hmm. um, who's almost three, well, that has been a life changer because it forces you to, you have no choice and mm -hmm. you're not going to, you know, you really enjoy spending time with your kids. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that mindset changes at some point for people. Yeah. Getting tenure also helps. So right. for me, the, a lot of the pressure is off. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that that anxiety mindset, that really driven mindset, is true for a lot of people, um, at least up through when they get tenure. And then mm -hmm. it's still there. It's like their dominant response, but mm -hmm. they they have other things going on in their life that yeah. that also occupy them. But speaking of being your own boss, and you mentioned uh, your son, spending time with your son, um, what does David Amodio like to do when he's uh, not yeah. being Professor Amodio or the research scientist? Uh, sleep. <laughs> Say that's number yeah. one. Yeah. Um, I think anyone in the academic, in any academic field would say that. <laughs> um, I forgot what a lot of my old hobbies were. I, I played a lot of music and mm -hmm. was um, really into uh, going to shows like rock shows, jazz shows, whatever, and, and, you know, playing in bands and things like that, but that's all in the past. Reading, reading novels, I haven't done that for years. <laughs> um, these days, especially being in New York and Greenwich Village, mm -hmm. um, my biggest hobby is being a foodie. Right. That, that's, a, that's a fun pastime around here. Mm -hmm. um, and then traveling, actually one of the perks, so I talked, I told you a lot of the negative aspects of mm -hmm. the academic lifestyle. Yeah. Well, there are perks. Mm -hmm. um, I, I barely traveled, no, I never traveled outside the U.S. until I was a graduate student. I went to my first conference abroad in, in Spain. Mm -hmm. And from then forward, uh, I've gotten to go all over the world. Yeah. And oftentimes, because I'm invited somewhere to give a lecture or, mm -hmm. or teach in a workshop, and um, it's paid for, and it's it's been an amazing experience. And so now what I like to do when I'm also not being a professor is travel. Mm -hmm. Half the time it's, it's connected to work, yeah. you know, so you might go out there and give a, a workshop and then 
you get to travel around for a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And then more and more, especially once once you have kids, you want you need to do non-work travel and mm. fun stuff. So. So yeah, that sounds reasonably fun, right? <laughs> Still see music once in a while mm. if I can. I've got all this great music right right around where I live, mm. so and I walk by it every day. It's it's sad I can't do more of it, but then. You studied music in, in college, or did I make that up? That's true. You did? Okay. And what exactly uh, did you do in college related to music? Um, I, let's see, well, I, I played piano since I, I took lessons since I was five years old, mm -hmm. and then played a few other instruments along the way, and then um, in college I played in a jazz group, playing piano, and yeah, mostly, mm -hmm. and then in a rock band, playing Guitar, not necessarily so well, and various other things. Um, and then as a music major, I was into like composition and modern, I guess what you might call modern classical, just modern mm -hmm. contemporary music. And so, yeah, so I had a senior recital where it was half um, original compositions, like for, I wrote for orchestra or like wow. a, uh, string trio, kind of quartet-like, but for a trio, and mm -hmm. some other ensembles, and then the other half was my, my jazz group, which was like a se sextet, you mm -hmm. know, so piano, drums, bass, and then I think we had like a trumpet, trombone, and saxophone, that was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe I did that, though, because it's so long ago, and I haven't done, I had to choose, what am I going right, to do? Right, yeah, I was going to say, it seemed like you had to sacrifice something that you were really into back then. So yeah, I was super sure. this career, yeah. When I, when I was a senior undergrad, and um, part of it is I thought, well, neither, neither music nor psychology is going to be the most lucrative, <laughs> lucrative career, mm -hmm. but I, I felt like my ch maybe it would be a little bit better for psychology. It seemed like it was a sure bet. Also, I should say I probably was better at psychology, mm -hmm. even though I loved music and I think I was pretty good. Um, my psychology professor... Um, was more encouraging and brought me in more, whereas my music advisor was really encouraging and great, but he, mm -hmm. never, he never like sat me down and said, you should consider this for a career. Mm -hmm. it, could either, it could be some mixture of like, I, either I wasn't good enough and or he knew how hard it was to really mm -hmm. make it yeah, yeah. as an academic musician. Mm -hmm. which I, you know, I wasn't a performance person, I was much more into the composition part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know your situation is very specific, but I think it, it highlights how important mentors or, or any yeah. you know uh, established person to provide guidance. How important that can be for for any young student. Yeah, it's huge. If I didn't have somebody who um, took me under her wing and noticed me and, and tried to develop that my interests, mm -hmm. I have no clue what I possibly might be doing now. Yeah, it's and it's yeah. crazy how small things from a mentor that you might have any any point in your life can mm -hmm. have huge implications for what you do yeah. but you're doing fascinating research that i really enjoy and uh, Thanks. i want you, i just want to say thank you for you know taking the time out to speak with me if um if our listeners would like to kind of get in touch with any of your research uh do you have a any resources for them or yeah, a I'd website that them, you visit yeah i invite them to um Look at my laboratory webpage, and you can find that at amodiolab.org. Um, otherwise, NYU has a psychology website that's mm -hmm. got um, 
that includes me and a, a lot of other mm -hmm. professors and researchers doing fascinating research. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you very much. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.